Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. You guys build this thing? Yes! Yes. I use that on my farm. (laughs) Hey, they're talking about a thing? They're talking about a farm? Nicole, what on earth are they talking about? (laughs) Well, believe it or not, that is a potato rover, Laura. Well, I believe you, but (laughs) that still doesn't help me. What the heck is a potato rover? Well, it is a four-wheeled robot. It's on this black and silver metal frame, and it's about the size of a smart car, and it has a little flat platform with a couple of boxes on top, and it sort of looks like a rover you might see on Mars rather than a a field. Um, But this potato rover roams through some farmer's fields in Prince Edward Island, Um, And uh, you're not the only one wondering (laughs) what a robot is doing exactly on a potato farm. Actually, there were a few people who stopped on the road to see what was going on, what this robot is actually doing in the field. That's Atizaz Farouk at the University of PEI. Okay, so we're getting closer here. This is still (laughs) still quite something. Um, We better let listeners know who you are, though, before we go any further. Yes. Well, I'm Nicole Mortolero, and I'm a senior science reporter with CBC News. And welcome, Nicole. I'm Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. So, Nicole, why is a potato rover, something I've just learned about, why is it a climate solution? It's a very PEI thing, isn't it? A potato rover. Um, It's perfect. Um, Well, It is one of many ways that artificial intelligence is helping us solve climate problems. And that's because it's a disease-seeking robot. So there are, um, if you imagine this platform, and then at the front of it, there are two extended arms to the right and the left with three cameras attached to it. And they're looking for diseases that are becoming more common in potato crops as the world warms. And so... Using this AI, uh, they actually direct people. You can get it on your uh, phone and direct people, the farmers, to infested plants. And so eventually, though, they hope to attach a robotic arm that can pluck out the diseased plants on its own. Wow. And, and you came across this, well, I was going to say contraption, across this amazing robot as part of yeah. your research into the link between AI and climate change. And so we're going to be exploring more solutions, but this is actually a complicated story because AI is also part of the problem, right? Yeah, and and that's because, you know, whenever you use the technology to say to do something fun, to make a picture of yourself as a pirate, for example, or find the best recipe for banana bread or chocolate chip cookies, there's actually a carbon footprint. Okay. Well, let's get into it then. To start with, how does AI actually create emissions? Yeah, it may be hard to imagine, kind of like the cloud, right? We, we, we just, it's there. We just don't know what it is. It's very abstract and it doesn't exist, we think, in a physical space. But most AI computing is hosted in data centers 
around the world. And there are hundreds of them in Canada alone right now. And we visited one of these uh, data centers, uh, the data center here, actually, in Toronto CBC building. Yeah, it's not a quiet room, let me tell you that. Um, it was very loud. Fans, those, what you can hear are fans running constantly in order to cool the computers. So to give you a, an image of what this room looks like, you walk in the door and there are rows upon rows uh, of metal shelves. And on those metal shelves are, you know, black boxes with blinking lights. And it's just, it's just this massive room and it looks very kind of high tech, kind of weird. Well, I guess that would be since it probably is a, it's a room full of computers. What's the environmental <laughs> impact of all of that? So it's twofold. So if you imagine uh, these computers... Um, they generate a lot of heat because they're using a lot of electricity. If you can imagine, it's like when, you know, you have your laptop on your lap for a long time, for an extended period of time. It heats up. You can feel that heat. Well, it's the same way. And so they need to cool these data centers. And some of them, many of them are actually cooled with water. And so the energy that is being used in the computers themselves, like in the generating with the AI and the energy used to actually do cooling as well. That's AI is all part of that. So we spoke to Yassine Jernite from a company called Hugging Face. Uh, and they host an open source platform where AI models are shared. At a very high level, running AI is running any other computer program. You have an input, you want an output, it's going to do lots and lots of operations. And doing lots of operations for one answer means that there's a lot of energy and electricity consumed by the computer running those operations. Well, that makes sense. I guess, though, how does it all add up? How big is AI's carbon footprint globally? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. Because we really don't know the answer. So, you know, you imagine these data centers are hosting all these different computers, and some of them are doing AI. Um, but it's still AI and, and these data centers are a really unregulated space. And it doesn't, they don't track it. It's hard to track. How do you tease that out of that, right? And transparency, they, they don't have that. So a lot of people around the world, though, are trying to solve it. Um, a recent study from Hugging Face found that one AI-generated image can consume as much energy as charging a smartphone. So imagine that around the world every day. And according to the International Energy Agency transmission networks and those data centers where the AI is hosted, um, they account for about 1% of global energy-related emissions. This does not sound like a lot. One percent. Well, you know, so what? But that's almost as much as the entire aviation industry. And the concerning part, really, is that, you know, AI is not going anywhere. It's not going to we're not going to stop using it. We're just going to continue to use it so that AI is growing. Oh, boy. And that means emissions are growing better. But are some AI models actually more emissions intensive than others? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Experts say that the more focused an AI model is for a specific task, so because it does fewer computations, to fulfill that task. So let's say you have an image of a dog and a cat, and you ask the AI, identify which one is a cat. That um, is a very like specific job for AI. 
So it doesn't really have that many computations. And it's so that is very low emission. But generative AI, like chat GPT, where you're asking it to generate something, be it an image or a sentence or research, that can do many, many things, will require more energy to compute. And that's something experts want us to take into consideration, obviously, when um, applying AI to our everyday lives. We spoke to Priya Dante, a co-founder of Climate Change AI. The information and communication technology sector as a whole made up about 2% of emissions in, say, like 2019, 2020. And AI at the time was a an unknown but small fraction of that. That said, as AI is becoming more widely adopted across society and the types of models that we're using are also changing, some of the models are getting larger and larger, this picture is changing and we really have to be on the lookout for the growth in AI's emissions footprint. And fundamentally, one thing that is challenging in getting a hold of that is that there isn't enough transparency among data center providers, among entities that are actually creating machine learning algorithms. So, yeah, the challenge is trying to figure out just how much AI use is responsible for these emissions from data centers. I got to say, though, don't you think AI should be able to figure out how much emissions AI is generating? (laughs) That would make sense. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to be flip. I mean, this is fascinating. But but the thing is, we, we actually started out talking about the potato rover, which is an example of AI playing a positive role in the climate fight. Yeah. So... While AI causes emissions, of course, Priya says it's also going to be a huge part of our transition away from fossil fuels. From helping us better forecast solar and wind on the power grid to help us better integrate those into power grids, to helping better optimize heating and cooling systems in buildings to help kind of improve the efficiency of those systems, to helping us map things like deforestation and emissions using global satellite imagery in order to understand where deforestation is occurring or emissions are occurring in real time, to even helping us accelerate the discovery of clean technologies like batteries by helping us to analyze the outcomes of past experiments and suggest which experiments, which types of battery designs to try next. So AI is really being used in all sorts of ways across many different sectors to address the climate fight. Well, that is a long list, Nicole. But do you have more examples of how it's playing out around the world? Of course. So uh, let's start with this. Another guessing game. So what is this sound? Can you guess what that is, Laura? Well, it could be a few things. Um, (laughs) it, It sounds like wind going through long grasses, but... (laughs) It also sounds like something munching. So uh, how about locusts? You (laughs) you got it. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Nuts. Ah, I thought I'd stump you there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that that is absolutely the sound of locusts, which are a huge pest to uh, farmers. And in the global south, climate change is actually increasing uh, locusts, uh, locust outbreaks. And that threatens food security in a in a region that already faces food insecurity. So an AI tool has been developed that uses data with a, using a whole bunch of parameters, including soil moisture, wind, humidity, satellite images, and more to predict these locust swarms in some African countries. But here's the best part of it is that farmers can receive text alerts up to three months in advance of an outbreak. I mean, that's amazing. 
And I guess that allows them to prepare or, or perhaps trying to stop it before it starts. Exactly, exactly. Wow. What, and what else is there? So um, floods, another global concern. Doesn't matter where you are, pretty much. And, um, and AI-powered models are providing earlier warning systems, earlier warning systems. If you, you know, the IPCC reports, they talk about what is needed. And that is a big one. And so this AI-powered model is doing that. It's giving uh, a early warning system for natural disasters like floods. And it can also help. This is the great part. It can also help map flood patterns so that it guides disaster response when it is most needed and most critical. And then, of course, here in Canada, it's, um, there are uses for fighting wildfires. You know, last year was a devastating year for fires uh, across Canada. Um, But AI is being tested as a way to detect wildfires really early, like really early. Uh, We spoke to a German-based company called Dryad that is building AI-trained sensors for ultra-early wildfire detection. So it actually is like an electronic nose. Um, that can actually smell a fire. We can um, detect fires as small as a campfire, uh, even before there is an open flame. So um, to give you a, a visual picture, first of all, that's that's Dryad's CEO, Karsten uh, Brinkschult. Uh, but to give you an idea of what he's talking about, the, these sensors are green. They're in plastic, and they kind of look like an upside-down hand mirror that you hold for your face. And in there is a sensor. And these sensors are incredibly sensitive. So sensitive that one can cover the area of an entire football field. And so far around the world, they've deployed about 20,000. Um, but um, Carson said that they have uh, launched a pilot project in California in the Redwood Forest. And they have a pilot project here in Canada, but they are unable to divulge their client's name yet. Oh, that's not fair. I'd like to be keeping an eye on that as we go forward. I know, very important. But Nicole, so all of this brings us to a really important question. How do you keep that climate good that's being gained from AI and reduce the carbon footprint? Yeah, um, so experts point to a few solutions here. And I mean, let's let's be honest, the big one is we need to move away from fossil fuels and we need to make sure our electrical grid is powered by renewables. That's number one. Um, but Priya says organizations who use AI, you know, they can also be a little bit less wasteful. And we need to make serious choices about both how we make AI models more efficient for the places where we'll use them But also, like we have to do for every sector, reevaluate which uses are worth the electricity that's coming in. So better AI use habits, Um, remembering that there is actually a cost to using it. So don't use it for everything. And and that includes us personally. I got to confess here, okay? I uh, had heard chat GPT this, chat GPT this. So one day I was curious and I went on chat GPT and they, they had a dolly which generates images. And I thought, OK, I'm going to try then. Of course, I made several images of me as an astronaut. <laughs> if anyone knows Nicole, they won't be surprised by that. Nicole is in love with space and space travel. 
<laughs> yeah, so I, I just kept going, oh, well, I want a better one, you know. <laughs> and and I didn't know this at the time. I even did the thing, I am, you know, who is Nicole Martellaro on ChatGPT? Like, see if I was on there and, and what it said about me. And, and then I discovered this. And yeah, that thing that seemed to be abstract was no longer abstract to me anymore. So yeah, we just need to be a little more careful. Well, you're forgiven, Nicole, because you didn't know. Now you do. Exactly. Right. I, I saved them. Okay. Okay. Uh, fair enough. But but a big part of this, obviously, is awareness and people understanding that AI isn't this sort of magic fun tool with zero climate impact. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the mind shift that Priya says that we need to start uh, taking. So I think that we definitely shouldn't view AI as a costless thing. I think it's very easy to view this as abstract thing on your computer that doesn't have any impact, but it does. So, you know, while AI still feels so new and it's very, it's still very unregulated. I mean, that's why you're seeing AI pop up everywhere in every corner on, on you know, online and in the news. Um, Chat GBT really surprised people and got policymakers thinking about privacy concerns, like things like privacy concerns and election fraud, you know, very important things, um, you know, and then now we're, you know, oh, computers taking over, we're going to, you know, it's going to reach singularity. Um, they're all very important concerns. But Yassine says that we can't let that distract us from the important environmental impact that is exists with this, um, and especially as the AI industry continues to grow. I think a big worry is that as we're adapting to uh, these really impressive new behaviors of AI, and we're thinking about issues that are more grounded in science fiction and imagination and asking ourselves whether that's what we're getting right now, uh, there's a real risk to stay distracted from pressing concerns about seeing how it's part of a broader conversation we've been having about climate change and climate impact. And there's a real risk that we lose precious years in doing that. We can't really afford to be distracted for five years thinking about whether the AI is going to be the terminator instead of addressing how it's going to impact uh, climate emissions in the coming years. Wow, there is so much to think about here. Nicole Martellaro, um, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. I, send me a picture of you as an astronaut. I want to see it. I really okay, it's do. It's on my laptop at home. I okay. will. I will. Thank you. Get home. <laughs> okay, Nicole. Thanks. Take, Take care. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. We've got some time now for other climate stories that are making news this week. The European Union has managed to lower its carbon emissions down to their lowest levels in 60 years, according to an analysis from the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air. 2023 saw an 8% decrease from the previous year, marking the biggest drop since the start of the pandemic in 2020. The closing of factories and curtailed flying contributed to the 2020 reduction. The Centre says more than half of the cut in emissions came from cleaner electricity sources such as wind and solar. Climate change led to a drought that fueled wildfires, caused big drops in the levels of rivers, and threatened the livelihoods of millions living in the Amazon, according to scientists. The 2023 drought meant the Amazon River, the largest in the world by volume, reached its lowest levels in 120 years. 
the World Weather Attribution Initiative, an international collaboration between scientists, says there would have been a severe drought even without climate change, but the warming of the planet meant the severity was listed as exceptional. Last week's program was all about green energy in Canada's coldest communities. We heard about the causes of Alberta's electricity supply crunch during the recent cold snap. And we asked how renewables there will fare to meet the demand during extreme cold. We also looked into listener questions around EVs and heat pumps in colder climates. After that, even more of you got in touch. What on earth, Rachel Sanders, is here with some of your emails. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. Yes, there's always a lot of listener feedback whenever we talk about EVs or heat pumps. People can't get enough of these subjects. Uh, Bruce Timmons wrote, I enjoyed your show on EVs and heat pumps. These technologies are game changers and need all the promotion they can get. There is, though, certainly a lot to learn about mm. the technologies, how... When, where can they best be used as climate solutions? Mm -hmm. Um, They seem to think that we have all the answers (laughs) and we try. But what else did we hear from our listeners, Rachel? Yeah, Paul Smeggle wrote about his experience during the cold snap in Alberta. He said, I live in a big city. As people shut off TVs, hair dryers and lights, not one vanity light display on towers were dimmed down. Again, so many support, so few. Oh, I bet that was frustrating to look at tall buildings, signs blazing while people were hungry down in their darkened homes with the lights off. Um, But we also, as I said, we saw quite a few emails about heat pumps in our inbox. We did, yes. Turns out there's a lot more to say on that topic. Cindy Rattle wrote from Ottawa about the cost of having a backup system for a heat pump, such as a gas furnace. If you're getting a heat pump but already have a gas furnace that still works, that's one thing. But Cindy points out that her furnace is 15 years old and will need replacing as well. So that's something else you need to consider when you're looking at the cost. And the other topic that people just love to write us about EVs. That's right. Yeah. Last week, you chatted with Mark Vavoda in northern BC. He drove from Prince George to McBride in an electric vehicle. That's about 220 kilometers. It was minus 24 degrees Celsius outside, and Mark made the trip on a single charge. Well, Jim Handman wrote to us about that. He said, like your guest, I also traded in my Honda Accord in 2020 for an EV, in my case, a Kia Nero EV. But I do think he underplayed the challenges of charging and driving in a cold climate. The cold has a significant impact on the battery and the range, and the heating uses far more battery than the AC does in summer. And in his email, Jim shared a recent challenge he had driving home from Pearson Airport in Toronto when it was minus 12. The cold affected his car's battery. By the time Jim got home, it was nearly drained. Right. Jim went on to say, I love my EV and will never go back to an internal combustion engine car, but it does require a different way of thinking about driving and planning a trip. We've driven to Montreal and Owen Sound with no issues, but you do have to factor in time for charging stops And the cold, of course. So lots of people out there weighing their options. And there were other questions about personal energy solutions as well. Hybrid water heaters, heat pump warranties, solar-powered heat pumps, and what options there are for renters who want to reduce their carbon footprint. And we had so many suggestions and questions about other energy sources, geothermal, nuclear. And you know what? I think that's lots of fodder for future episodes. Right, yes. But before we wrap up, I want to read you one more email. 
Sue Miller wrote to us about the power grid alert in Alberta and said, a woman you were interviewing pointed out that electric cars had little impact on the situation since there are so few in Alberta. I waited for you to ask the obvious question, what will happen when there are more EVs? I was disappointed that the elephant in the room was ignored. It's an important and legitimate question. And I think the context Sue was talking about is having people in their EVs at home charging their EVs up and using more electricity from the grid. And it's a legitimate question. So thanks for asking it, Sue. In fact, we put the question to Canada's Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbeau just this week. So stay tuned and hear what he has to say about that. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Laura. And thanks for all of the emails. We do read all of them, so keep them coming. You can always get in touch about anything you hear on the show. Email address is earth at cbc.ca. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. The brutal cold snap that pushed Alberta's power supply to its limit is over for the time being. But the political debate about the future of Canada's electricity grid isn't going away. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, here is a recap of what happened in Alberta just a couple of weeks ago. During an extremely cold weekend, two natural gas-fired power plants were offline, one due to the weather and another for maintenance. Natural gas makes up the majority of the grid there, but there's a small amount of wind and solar. The Alberta electric system operator had predicted little wind that day, and late in the afternoon with little sun, demand started to peak. So the electricity operator issued an alert and asked Albertans to conserve. It worked. The power stayed on. The ordeal had Alberta Premier Danielle Smith questioning on social media the reliability of green energy. Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gobeau is here with me now to respond to those concerns and some of the questions you have about renewables. Minister, welcome back to What on Earth? Thank you very much, Laura. Uh, the grid alert in Alberta has raised questions about your clean electricity plan and how well renewables can get us through Canada's very cold winters. I'm wondering how you respond to those questions. I think it's pretty rich by Premier Smith to blame a federal regulation that won't enter into force for another decade for the problems that she has now with her grid. Uh, the problem that 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 we're seeing with Alberta's grid um, are not due to the federal government, but due to mismanagement by the provincial government for for many many years. And for those people who think that renewables are to blame, I mean, we have provinces and territories across the country who are using renewables to produce electricity and have been for many decades. And it's interesting that we didn't see those problems in those provinces where it's been very cold uh, over these past few weeks. So um, Alberta needs to be investing in its grid capacity. And in fact, the crunch that we saw in Alberta 
it didn't have anything to do with renewables. So this idea that you know natural gas is the solution to everything when it comes to electricity is is simply a fabrication. But it's also true, is it not, that right now you can't completely rely on renewables to ensure that your grid operates in all weather. Depends where you are. Some provinces uh, in, in, in Canada have almost 100% renewable electricity, but it's true that it's not possible everywhere. In, well, let's, in let's focus on Alberta then, yes, because uh, there it is not possible to rely completely on renewables. And the proposed regulation that we've, that we've presented do not prevent the use of natural gas come 2035. We're trying to limit as much as possible the use of fossil fuel-based uh, electricity generation come 2035, but it won't be forbidden. Uh, let's talk about electric vehicles then, because um, their operation in frigid climates are also facing questions. Some claim they can work over longer distances if you plan ahead and there's adequate charging infrastructure, but that isn't everyone's experience. And I'm wondering, in your plan to phase out gas-powered cars or new cars by 2035, how will you make sure that EVs are a practical and affordable choice for Canadians in any weather, regardless of the brand of EV they drive and where they live? I could point to an existing example right now in the world, a very cold country, a country that's very similar to ours in, in, in many instances, Norway. Uh, today in Norway, 9 out of 10 vehicles that are sold are electric vehicles. So that they're already in, you know, in 2024, where we're hoping to be in 2035. But, I, but there are differences between Norway and Canada in that, in that a large number of the people who drive EVs are living in urban centers, um, where when, when cars are used in urban centers, they're usually I've, for shorter trips. I've been to Norway. They have charging stations every 50 kilometers on highways from south to north. Norway's more than 3,000 kilometers. And this idea that, you know, only people use electric vehicle in, in, in Oslo is, is simply simply not true. I mean, again, that being said, I mean, we, we recognize that in Canada, we need to invest in the infrastructure to make it as easy as possible for people to charge. Sales of electric vehicles in Canada have tripled over the last two and a half years. But we we need to, to beef up our, our, our charging infrastructure. We have about 25,000 public charging stations right now. We will take this number up to close to 100,000 in the coming six years, basically. But, but people should remember that 80% of vehicle users charge at home. Natural Resources Canada estimates that depending on the availability of home charging, Canada will actually need between 442 and 469,000 public charging ports by 2035. And I, I heard you, what you said about 100,000 in the next six years. 100,000, th- these are just public charging stations. Right, so, that's what I'm so, talking about. Yeah. So you're going to need up to 469,000 of mm-hmm. those by 2035. How are you going to get there? Well, if we, um, as I said, 80% of people charge at home. If we have 100,000 public charging stations by 2030 in Canada or 2029 is is the goal, we will see people in, installing much larger numbers of, of charging stations at, at their home. That's that's how, how we will get there. Okay, let's talk about another program where you're, um, the government is granting incentives and what's happening with it. Heat pumps. It's obviously been something that's also come up in provinces with colder winters. And the Greener Homes grant was meant to help homeowners switch to electric heat pumps. Except now Ottawa's budget watchdog is warning that the program could run out of money sooner rather than later because of high demand. So what's the federal government doing to keep the program going? 
We're referring here to one specific program, the Greener Homes program. It's not the only program we have to do home energy retrofit because we have programs under the CMHC. We have loans for people who want to do home and home energy retrofits, which, which can also include the purchase of a of a of a heat pump. And and there is another program uh, this time under the Natural Resource Ministry uh, that is dedicated specifically for for for, for heat pumps. Um, so the, the the program that the parliamentary budget officer was referring to is the greener home programs. I I know that Minister Wilkinson, who who is responsible for this program, is is working hard to see if more money can be included. But there will be other programs, both for people who want to purchase uh, and have installed uh, heat pumps, and also people who want to do home energy retrofit. But not as broadly based as the greener homes grant. I mean, depending on on what you're talking about, uh, through the Greener Homes program, you can get up to five thousand dollars for a feed pump. Uh, the oil to heat pump program that uh, that we've launched and for which now we have uh, agreements with four provinces, where basically for people under the, the medium income uh, between federal government and provincial government, we will pay a hundred percent of the cost of of purchasing. And that's installing. largely then that largely has an impact in Atlantic Canada. That program uh, actually we uh, there's a West province and I don't think I can name it just yet but there's a western province that that has agreed to come on board uh, there's some territories that are looking to come on board with 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 this program as well so it's this true is that for we have... this is for homes that are switching from oil yeah oil to heat pumps right. yes exactly can I just ask you one more thing about the greener homes grant when will homeowners get an answer about whether the program will continue well, as of today, and as as when your your listeners will be hearing this, the program is still open. The program is still continuing. So people who want to to, to benefit from that program can still apply for it. And again, I'm I'm, I'm confident that Minister Wilkinson will be able to come to come up with some good news in terms of this program in in the near future. I hope Christian Freeland agrees with him on that. <laughs> I uh, I just let, let's just tie all this back to the grid for a second, though, because we heard concerns from from at least one listener, about whether the grid can support that many more EVs on the road, that many more heat pumps. How do you plan to support provinces in expanding grid capacity and keeping electricity affordable? This idea that doubling the size of the grid may sound like something that's unattainable, yet we've done that in North America. We've done that in Canada. In the last 35, 40 years, we've basically doubled the size of our grid. Uh, and and we've reduced greenhouse gas emissions on average across the country by about 40%. So we just have to reproduce in the next 25 years, more or less, what we've done in the last 35. And, and, and we're providing tens of billions of dollars to help provinces and territories, public and private utilities, to be able to rise up to that challenge. Okay, so let's look ahead a little bit. Municipalities in Alberta are bracing for another dry summer, and the province is planning to mobilize firefighting teams early. Snowpack levels in BC are also extremely Mm -hmm. low, according to the BC River Forecast Centre. Besides training additional firefighters, bringing in others from outside of Canada, what is your government doing to prepare for what could be another record-breaking heat and wildfire year? I was just in Winnipeg last week and I was shocked 
by how little snow uh, there is there as well. And, and as you know, Laura, we uh, we published uh, last year the first ever national adaptation strategy. It's a national strategy with provinces, territories, municipalities, indigenous nations, even the private sector experts. And we're in the process of deploying uh, that. As you and I have talked about before, there are things that we are working on for the, for the more longer term. New building codes for Canada that would include elements around building resiliency in our building codes for our houses and, and buildings so that they're better equipped to to face um, floodings or heat waves or even forest fires. So we, we are working on, on a number of these things, and it's a strategy that has some, some short-term, medium-term, and, and long-term targets. Minister Guibault, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much, Laura. We did ask Alberta's Utilities Minister for a response, and here is part of Nathan Newdorf's email statement. Quote, While renewables are an important part of our supply, we depend on natural gas 365 days a year. But especially in extreme weather conditions, when wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining. The statement goes on to read, quote, The clean electricity regulation puts an unattainable timeline in place to offset natural gas capacity, and cost put on Alberta far exceeds their jurisdictional and constitutional authority, unquote. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and picture this. I was there in the fall. It was completely stunning. It was hues of golden yellow, orange, pink, and red. I drove um, to the community from Quebec City, and I was just in awe of how beautiful and stunning their territory is. I was enthralled watching for hours the scenery on my way to the Gaspé Peninsula. I hope you weren't driving. (laughs) I was. I'm a very good driver. (laughs) That's Melina Labacan Massimo. She's what on earth's Indigenous Climate Solutions columnist, and she's a member of the Lubicon Cree First Nation, the founder of Sacred Earth Solar, and the co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. Okay, well, I'm glad you you made it there, even with all of those amazing scenes. I mean, that, that part of the world in the fall is stunning. But I'm wondering, when you got there and you saw all of these huge wind turbines, what did you think of that? I mean, the wind turbines stretched across a vast area of their territory. There's actually 47 in total, and they have to be spread apart. So it was incredible to see in real life. I actually didn't realize how massive they are. And so when you stand even beside one, you feel completely tiny in comparison. It just made me realize how this type of technology can change the world because their size and scale is incredible. She's talking about a trip she took to Mi'kmaq Territory to see the Mesquiguchusan Wind Farm. That name, it means big wind. It is big and it is very windy in that part of the country. Melina wanted to share the story of how three Mi'kmaq communities worked together to develop this renewable energy project. I came away from this project completely inspired by what I saw being built by three Mi'kmaq communities. 
during my time there, I was able to speak with community members that were there from the very beginning to the very end of bringing this project to fruition. And I also met with community members who led the construction phase, as well as wind technicians from the community. And I also was able to visit a community school where part of the revenues from this project will eventually be used to support cultural and language revitalization, which I think most people, most listeners will start to understand with the truth and reconciliation process is so critical for Indigenous nations after a long history of colonialism. The impacts you know, that we have in our communities are as a very threat of survival for Indigenous languages and cultural practices. So it just has so much significance and value. And Gaspe Gawagi is actually Mi'kmaq for the place name for the Gaspe Peninsula. And it actually has the strongest sustained winds in the country, making the region a hotspot for the country's wind energy sector. So I wanted to share how the Mi'kmaq nation has harnessed wind to benefit their communities and the local economy. And it's so important for the rest of the country to know inspiring projects like this. Yeah, no kidding. Now, you spoke with Troy Jerome. He's from Listigooch, one of three communities involved in the project. He was president and CEO of Senti, the renewable energy company who was involved in the project. What did he tell you about the roots of it all? Well, the roots of this project came from a political governing document called the Nitmitgenin. It says, and I quote, we honor the voices of a people whose vision is to reclaim Mi'kmaq traditional lands, minerals, and waters for all generations in order to fulfill the rights, obligations, and sacred instructions of our ancestors. So Troy, who led me around the community, told me this. He said, we are not solely building a wind farm, we are building our nation. So as you can imagine, Indigenous governance includes building self-sustaining projects like this. And here's what Troy had to say about this when I spoke with him. When you think about the territory itself, you know, when you look at the sun rising, you know, out of the east, we are Wabanaki people, we're of the east. That sun, you know, rises, warms the land, the winds come across. You know, it's all tied to the land. We are people of the land, you know, red, red earth people. We come right from the earth. We're going back to the earth. And we should be able to determine our own destiny as we did, you know, prior to European contact. And the only way to do that was to have enough revenues to provide uh, governance and programs within our territory for our people. Okay, well, that makes sense. It, the revenues, um, governance, what kinds of job opportunities did the project bring to the communities? You know, a number of jobs, but I specifically met two incredible Mi'kmaq wind farm technicians who were trained to operate and maintain the wind turbines throughout their territory. So they were really proud to use their skills to power their nation. And in agreements like this, which they developed with their energy partner, Interjix, which included a community procurement agreement, ensuring employment was local and supported workers from the communities. So this meant that they hired over 100 people from the three communities out of the 300 jobs that this project provided during the building and construction phase. And this allowed for employment to be from the community and stay in the community, which supported the local economies. And then it also builds community businesses. And it also allowed who I met, two young people, brought them into the renewable energy sector. What did those young men say about what impact it's had on them? Well, you could just see the pride in their faces when they talked to me about the project. We actually were there in the community and then we drove all the way out to the one of the wind turbines that needed to have operation and maintenance. We all we went all the way to the top and you could see their territory. It just like for me to be, I wish I, you know what, I was just so happy for them and proud of them because I just wanted to see more community members across the country have such pride in their faces. Yeah, I can I can believe that. But but aside from that, which is 
very important. Have there been economic benefits? Yeah, so this project is actually expected to generate over $200 million for the three communities over 20 years. So since this project went operational, funds have been accruing for the community that will be used towards strengthening their nation. And as you know, many Indigenous communities are severely underfunded in Canada. So for a community to have access to capital like this, it will allow for that education and language revitalization programs that supports a community as a whole. And trusts like this set up future generations because there is generational wealth being created for the community. Economic benefits are made possible with projects like this because the community also pushed for majority share and equity ownership. So the community had a say in how the project was developed and designed. So these economic benefits actually strengthen their governance and jurisdiction over their homelands. And here's what Troy had to say about how the community intends to use the money. At the time, it was quite clear for us, for myself at the time leading the project, that the money should go into education into our culture, into our language, because we went to a number of sessions with our people and we said, listen, what should we do? What should we do with these potential revenues? And they came back quite clear. This is what we need to do. And we need to be able to manage our territories. So the amazing thing is that the revenue will help in bringing their language back. I visited a classroom in Listigush that was dedicated to the Mi'kmaq language. And you could tell that the teachers and students found it incredibly important to speak their language and also create fluency within their nation. So the teacher that I spoke to told me of a strong desire to eventually have immersion one day in their school. Okay, that's really something. The communities, they actually flipped the switch on the wind farm project seven years ago this month. So tell me about the scale of the project. How big is it? So the Meskigi-Chusen Wind Park generates 150 megawatts of power with the annual production estimated at 515,000 megawatt hours, which powers over 30,000 homes. That's how large it is. That is huge. Why did yeah. they decide to take on such a large project? Well, to make it economically viable, so just to give you some background, in 2003 and 2005, the Quebec government and Hydro-Quebec put out two large tenders for calls for wind energy development in the province. The Listigush Mi'kmaq government actually presented project bids on both the first and second call for bids, but yet it wasn't even considered or selected. So then fast forward to 2009, Hydro-Quebec launched another invitation to tender, but this was to be split by local communities and First Nations. As soon as the documentation from the government became available, it was very clear to the First Nations that they were drastically limited in terms of installed capacity with a maximum of 24 megawatts per project, when on average in the province, an average project size was 130 megawatts and sometimes even larger. The chiefs considered these projects inequitable, and it also created an unprofitable situation for their communities. But why? Why was there such a big difference between the size of the project the communities were offered and the average size of wind farm projects in Quebec. You got me. I mean, I think this comes with a lot of structural oppression and racism, inequity that we see rampant across the board in Canada um, and how Indigenous peoples have been treated for 150 years. So, you know, it, it's this is what we have to be careful about when we're talking about the transition, because transition, the energy transition, the renewable energy transition needs to be equitable. We can't replicate the same systems of harm that we've seen with the fossil fuel regime. So that's why when we talk about just transition or energy transition, we need to ensure that communities are getting their fair share.
So what did the community do when they came when they saw that inequity? Yeah, they they called it out. They they released press releases. They went to all levels of government and they they refused to bid. So basically what they the leadership of the three communities signed a resolution to create a consortium for a joint venture to develop a wind farm with the eventual installed capacity of 150 megawatts on Mi'kmaq lands. So they just did it on their own. They basically defined what they wanted to do and they made their economic case and they signed also with an energy developer that uh-huh. interjects that was okay. a well-known energy developer that was willing to allow them to eventually have majority share okay. in the project. The community found it important to do a large-scale project because they wanted to receive the full economic benefits and also having access to the grid, which other non-Indigenous energy developers were already receiving on Mi'kmaq homelands. So here's what Troy had to say about this. There's a, 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 a something to be learned there. And we said, okay, yeah, if we get that big, people will take us seriously. If we get that big, it'll be a, a good fair share. And if we get that big, we would be able to invite or attract the good developers that are in our territory doing other projects. Because if we would have been too small, we might not have got the development deal that we got at the end. God, what persistence. So what lessons from this project did Troy share that could help other communities take on something of this scale? What Troy told me was persistence, persistence, persistence. When developing a renewable energy project, do not give up. He said that it was so important for the three communities to continue to push despite the challenges and barriers that they were facing. So he also said, and he's a super positive person, so he said, stay focused with a positive attitude. And he said, to develop such a large project, it's critical that communities don't take on multiple projects, that you just focus on that one project to bring it to fruition because it can take years. He also said that it's important to ensure that leadership is supportive and that the elders in the communities are involved. Other lessons he talked about were identifying critical resources, skilled expertise to ensure that communities have the right tools from the beginning of the project. So he also, the last thing that he mentioned to me was he said that sharing these lessons and information with other communities will build energy literacy that we really need to see in this country. Stay focused, give that project a name. We went, sat down with the chiefs and, you know, an elder chief came out and he just said, you know, very simple, Meskiyuk Jews and a big wind. And he says, that's what you guys are looking for, right? A big wind. And we were like, yes. So I think those are, you know, very simple things, but it, it makes the project come alive. So whatever you can do to make the project clear and alive. I love that. It is. It's simple, but it says it all, right? A big wind. <laughs> and so what, what lessons then can governments and policymakers take away from this project when it comes to supporting communities to build them? It's so important that policymakers and each level of government, not just talking about the federal, talking specifically to the province as well, because they control the grids in in those jurisdictions. It is important to ensure that energy policy includes community participation and equity ownership models. So secondly, it's important to understand that the generation of wind energy is not separate from utilities because the transmission of electron happens through our grid systems. And so it is required to incorporate how energy is bought and sold when it's running through Indigenous territories all across this country. So we actually are starting to see Indigenous inclusion happening in Ontario, BC, and New Brunswick when we're building transmission lines. Governments and policymakers need to create policy and incentives for big developers to prioritize building stronger relationships and deeper relationships with the communities they are working with. It's so important that government and policymakers ensure that developers 
have long-standing commitments to the Indigenous communities they are working with and whose lands they are operating on. So in the past, we've seen previous renewable energy policies, both in BC and Ontario, like we saw in the Green Energy Act, which no longer exists, unfortunately, in Ontario. But we saw these types of incentives that guaranteed Indigenous participation, and this is how projects were made possible. We also saw this actually in Alberta under specifically the Notley government, but now it's unclear if this will affect wind and solar projects because there's a current unfortunate moratorium in place in Alberta. And so this is actually sending the wrong signals to investors when we actually need to see more investment in renewable energy, especially in places like Alberta. So I would say the la some of the last things are that we don't need more roadblocks in front of communities when they're trying to build climate solutions and that we need to see provinces stepping up to fight climate change instead of putting barriers and moratoriums like we're seeing in Alberta. Okay, meanwhile, what's next for this project? Quebec actually just awarded another 100 megawatts to this very project we were talking about. So that means that this project that's already very large will increase by 60%. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> when did that happen? That just happened this past year. So that's a real vote of confidence, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And it just shows that having Indigenous ownership and participation increases the value of energy bids across this country. And also because Indigenous communities are so adamant about having good environmental, ecological and cultural assessments when these types of projects are being done, that they actually go above and beyond what is required because stewardship and caretaking of our land is so vital and it's such a strong cultural value. We went into extensive uh, discussions with our communities and for example, moose came up. What's going to happen with the moose in and around a wind farm during construction and after? So we went out and, you know, we did a science-based uh, research study and we watched the moose before, after, you know, even after the, the uh, project was over, we followed them. Where are they going? And it was clear that the moose would still go and, you know, hang out around the wind farms and you were able to, you know, do your hunting around the wind farms. So I think for us, the science was clear is that, you know, the, the issue about having a wind farm affecting the territory. Wow, that really tells a tale right there when you're thinking that much about the moose. Melina, this has been really interesting to hear about how all of this has developed and what's been happening with it. So, Melina Labukan-Massimo, thank you so much. Until we speak next time. Thank you again. Katie Field has a cartoon posted in her cramped office at the University of Sheffield in England, and it reveals two things about her. One, she has a sense of humor, and two, she really, really loves all things mushrooms and fungi. Yeah, uh, my students really like this. I have it on my door behind me, and it's uh, two mushrooms, one saying, you can do it, and the other one says, I believe in you, and it's captioned, morale support. Okay, did you get it? More L support? I'm sure you're all laughing out there. I can hear you all now. Katie loves looking into the role of mushrooms and fungi in our world. She recently co-authored a study that led to what she considers an astounding result. Besides all the other ways fungi benefit people and the planet, from medicine to building materials, the peer-reviewed paper concludes that fungal networks store a vast amount of carbon. Field is hoping the result will mean these fungi are taken into account in farming practices and other policy decisions to ensure they can play a role in getting to net zero. Stay tuned for my chat with Katie Field on an upcoming show. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also hear all of our episodes there, including last week's one about renewables and cold Canadian winters. And while you're there, leave us a review. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Anna Park, Carly Thomas, Paul McGuinness, and Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Laura Lynch. I think I'm going to go cook me up some mushrooms. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.